If you will, turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, and you should have a copy of Scripture there on your row. Uh, if, I would encourage you to grab a copy and follow along with us as we read. We've, as you may know, have been in Daniel for a few weeks now. We've uh, we finally made it to Daniel chapter 4. Now you have to understand, this, the, the, the book of Daniel, uh, as you may know if you've read it, there's a real shift from 6 to 7. In other words, from chapter 6 to 7, there's a shift in what's going on. The first part is really Daniel's experiences. In other words, there's six chapters that deal with Daniel's experiences. Primarily, as, as we've noticed, there's some prayers and whatnot, but primarily it's narrative. It's a story. And we've just been calling these stories episodes. Just like you would watch a Netflix episode. And it has a story to tell. And it has a moral to the story normally, or at least someone's trying to communicate something to you. And so we've tried to extract what it is that Daniel in each chapter is trying to say to us while keeping together the whole story, which is a tough thing. Then in chapter 7, things shift. It becomes very apocalyptic, which is dealing with the end of time, all the way to chapter 12. So there's six chapters of narrative of explaining experiences of Daniel in a foreign land. And then there are six chapters of visions and dreams and apocalyptic prophecy. Now we're going to have to save that for another time. All right. Set seven through twelve. But we are going to make it to chapter six. All right. So let's dive in without any further delay into chapter four. And once again, without reading the entire chapter, because these are quite meaty chapters... We're going to uh, be very, very uh, selective with our, with our reading. Notice this, these verses here right up front at the beginning of chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, this is Nebuchadnezzar II, by the way, if you want a historical reference. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs! How mighty His wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. And then if you'll flip to verse 34. At the end of the days, I... Nebuchadnezzar lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say, sorry, can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and lords sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. 
for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this reading of Holy Scripture. We pray now that the same Spirit that inspired this text would inspire our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What a change in Nebuchadnezzar. (laughs) I mean, you may have remembered from chapter 1 to chapter 2 to chapter 3, this is not a good guy. This is not a humble guy. And here he is seemingly writing out a proclamation to all peoples extolling the Most High. And by the Most High, he means Daniel's God. The same God that he recognized at the end of one, at the end of two, at the end of three, and now at the beginning of four. This one starts with really anticlimactic way. In the sense that we already know he's praising God. We don't have to wait until the end like the other episodes, right? Just like when you're watching a show, you know, they're written differently to change things up, shake things up. I like that, by the way. I don't like the same old thing all the time. And this chapter in particular is like a sandwich. And the two bread ends are praise to the Most High. And the meat within is the downfall, the disciplining of Nebuchadnezzar. God rewards the separate, those who live sanctified lives in this world. Chapter 1. God reveals the future. Chapter 2. And he knows all things. God rescues the faithful from the most powerful. Chapter 3. And now God rules over the mighty in chapter 4. And and this goes along with the thing that we talked about in, in, in the first chapter, which is God is in control. That is really... If you talk about Daniel's primary theme woven throughout, it's God is in control. Now we come to this chapter, and the climax of all things is the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus brings about, isn't it? In the New Testament, he comes preaching that the kingdom of God is near. And the kingdom of God will come. And here, at the mouth of a pagan king, he's saying his dominion lasts forever. His kingdom will have no end. <laughs> I mean, you almost have to chuckle here thinking about the situation. I mean, this is a pagan, bad news ruler of the world, despot. And he yet he's praising Daniel's God. You would think that God had Daniel there for a reason. And he did. He would not know 
Daniel's God had humbled him if it weren't for Daniel and his three friends being there. Brothers and sisters, don't we sometimes go through circumstances, get put in situations where we really don't have an answer for why? But God knows. And we must trust His knowledge even when we cannot understand it, maybe never can understand it. And this is Daniel. This is Daniel. And this is his three friends. And now this one, again, we have another dream. So you're really, you're really back to chapter 2. We have another dream and we have an interpretation of this dream. In this episode of Daniel, if you will, there's definitely some continuity from the previous episodes. I mean, don't you look for that when you're watching a show? Especially when you binge watch, you can really see the continuity. Yeah? No amens? Okay, everybody's like, oh, no, I don't, I don't binge watch. Just every week, once a week, or eight hours. But, you know. No, but you know how it is. When you watch something all together, which is why it's nice to read over a book of the Bible in totality. Don't take just the pieces. That's like cutting up an episode of a series. And so in this episode, we have Nebuchadnezzar. We know who that that is now. He's been introduced, (laughs) but not like this. And we have Daniel, Belteshazzar. And we have a dream. And so this episode begins very, very differently, and that is with a proclamation to all peoples. Just, think, just stop and think about that. This is a pagan king writing to everybody in the known world saying Daniel's God is the most high God. Now look, with this, with this chapter along with the rest of Daniel, really, there are many questions that, that we want to entertain. You know, Questions like, what in the world is he doing acting like an animal midway through this episode? How does that even happen? Is that a medical condition? Has it been observed before? Which it has. Um, But here's the thing about the Bible. It's a need-to-know basis. Sort of like in the military. Or sort of like if you work for the agency. You only get a little bit of information, enough to do your job, but not more. Here in Daniel, we can spin off to this and spin off to that and get all confused, but the author of this chapter is not interested in how and the psychology of it and this and that. That's not what he's interested in. So what is he interested in? That God is in control. He's keeping with the storyline. He's keeping with the plot all the way through. And that is even when a pagan king is ruling over God's elect people, even when they've been brought into submission, God's own people... God is still in control. Contrary to popular belief, contrary to how it is you feel about the circumstance, God is in control and that is the takeaway. So, the point can really be seen in a few verses Namely, 17, 26, and 27, and 37. 
Let me run you through just the episode just because I'm not going to assume that everybody knows uh, what, what is going on here. It opens up with Nebuchadnezzar again. And he's addressing the peoples of the earth. And he says this. He says, my intention is to tell everybody about the mighty acts of the Most High God. Who's great and who's universally sovereign. Now again, I just, you know, as a teacher of world religion, I have to stop and just be at all. Because this goes against Marduk, who is his primary God. He's the creative God within the pantheon of Babylon. And so even to say this, I mean, anybody else who would have said it would have been put to death. Nebuchadnezzar's even name was the mouthpiece of Marduk, who's the god who killed Tiamat, the great dragon. And yet he says it. He says it plain as day here in Daniel. (laughs) He recalls a time when he had a dream and it frightened him. We've, We've seen that before. He calls his wise men, but again, they can't interpret the dream. Go figure, he needs to fire them all. He's already tried to kill them once. Daniel ends up saving them, interestingly. So he returns to Daniel, Belteshazzar, because, quote, he possesses the spirit of the holy gods. Notice, Nebuchadnezzar's not converted. He's still in his paganistic, polytheistic, mindset that the divine is nature but this is just the most high God what we call henotheism which is you choose one God to be the high God among all the gods and so he says wow a new God up and coming God this God of Daniel is an up and coming God that is the real high God now that's not unusual because remember Tiamat in their mythology was the high God a female Deity, and then Marduk overtakes her. So it would not be out of the question again to think that another god would rise because just like in life, the old get replaced with the new, so too in the gods. It always is happening. And it may be happening in his mind here. We don't know again. But he calls his wise men. There is this second dream. And then there's an interpretation of the dream. The second dream is ultimately a big tree. And this big tree shelters all the animals of the world and all the things and it produces and it's again where all of everything is living and wrapped up if you will and now this heavenly messenger comes out of heaven and says chop it all down now again it's nice to entertain who is this heavenly messenger right seems like the divine seems like again this one that we'll see later if you continue reading the book, that's coming on clouds of glory. They don't have airplanes, by the way. If he's coming on clouds of glory, he's divine. Nobody's up in the clouds except for this heavenly one that comes and commands that it be cut down to the root. Now, he doesn't grind up the root, which is good news for Nebuchadnezzar because at the end of the day, the interpretation will be that you will be, in fact, restored. And we immediately, don't we, think of the root of Jesse? You've heard of this? The stump of Jesse will come, one whose kingdom will last forever. Jesse being the father of David. David, Jesus, the son of David. And so, if you've read this story, you know that once Daniel realizes the interpretation of the dream... 
He's a little nervous to take it to the king. Right? The king says, okay, Daniel, come on. I know that the spirit of the gods lives within you. So what's the interpretation of the dream? Well, king, I really hope that this is aimed at your enemies. But in fact, it's actually you that's the tree, sir. And you will be cut down. The tree symbolizes the king and all of his splendor and all of his strength, 20 through 22. But the king will be humbled and he will live away from society for a time and act like an animal. That's kind of bad news. I mean, it's like the president getting a a verdict that he's going to be away from society, out of the public eye, and he's going to act like an animal. If that happens, I guarantee the Secret Service will surround him and we won't see any pictures coming out for quite some time. This is apparently why it never made it into the extra biblical material that we have about Nebuchadnezzar II. I mean, would you want this to continue? To be talked about, about yourself? Probably not. You probably would push the delete button at one point in your life. Maybe as you look back at your life. But the stump remains and will be restored. But notice this. This is powerful. Notice the words. Just look at them with me in 26. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Isn't that what this is all about, see? Who rules, really? Nebuchadnezzar, who really rules things? Is it really you? Or is there a higher king than you? Therefore, O king, let my counsel... This is Daniel again talking to Nebuchadnezzar. Let my counsel be acceptable to you. And this is, I mean, just imagine standing beside, in front of the most powerful man in the world that with just, I mean, there's, there's guys around him with all kinds of weapons of war that are ready to chop your head off. And he says, break off your sins by practicing righteousness. Sounds like he's asking him to enter into a Lenten fast, isn't he? And your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Wow. He asked him to repent, point blank. Repent, king. And repent by doing righteousness, by showing mercy. Well, of course, as in standing with and in continuity with what Nebuchadnezzar has done before, after he praises God, about a year later, he's standing on a wall, which was a great wonder of the world. They said that four chariots could turn a whole circle with horses on top of that wall. And he's walking along, he says, wow, look at this. Look what I've done. This is amazing. I'm amazing. And there comes a voice from heaven. And he says, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. Remember this happened to Saul?
Here, Nebuchadnezzar gets humbled by God from heaven. There's a voice from heaven. It is God. It is the most high. And basically says, all right, the dream that you had, I warned you. I warned you. And here it comes now. And for seven years, apparently, he goes into thinking that he's an animal or a mental breakdown. We're simply not told. Uh, you know, some people are very troubled by this, uh, this episode. They, they don't really know what to make of it, uh, what to think about it. But at the end of the day, it's this. God humbles him. That's the point. God humbles him to be like a beast. I mean, no matter if he has a psychological breakdown or if he actually has some kind of animal tendencies where he's actually eating grass. Either way, he's away from society, living in the woods more than likely, and is humbled. Can't even do his job. R.K. Harrison, who I trust with the Old Testament... Uh, he actually witnessed a case in a British institution in 1946 of boanthropy, which is the medical term for acting like a bovine, acting like a cow or an ox. So it's not out of the question, but my point is it doesn't matter how or what or how it happened exactly or what it's called. The reality is God humbled the most powerful man in the world because... He thought he had done it. Then, at the end of this period, the Lord restores his sanity and his royal position because he acknowledges the Most High. In other words, he literally, what it says, looks up to heaven. We just read it. And he acknowledges the Most High. Again, saying, your kingdom lasts forever. And then comes those words at the end. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. It's the key verse. Key verse for the whole episode. It's where the episode shuts off and the credits begin to roll. And Daniel says to us, through the mouth of Nebuchadnezzar himself, yeah, God humbles the proud. Consider your situation, friends. God's immense patience with you, with me. God's undeserved mercies for you, for me. Many people find things to complain about. One of the things they complain about is the church. I've grown up in the church enough to hear complaining about the church. I'm the pastor now, so I definitely hear complaining about the church. Erasmus many years ago said this, put up with this church in hope that one day it will become better. That's why we say here at Harvest Point, we're just a church in the making. We're not a full service place. We know we don't have it all together and we know we don't have everything that we need. That's why we need you to come join us in this great work that God has called us to do. We want you to feel that pressure to jump in, to get involved, to produce fruit. But he says this, put up with this church in the hope that one day it will become better just as it is constrained to put up with me in the hope that I will become better. That's a different way to look at the church, isn't it? 
We also have to put up with you just like you have to put up with us. Isn't God so gracious enough to put up with us? Thanks be to God that He's been patient with me. How many times have I failed and done the wrong thing, not thought the right things, or not said the right things, or not went the right way, or didn't have enough gifting, or ability, or courage, or faith. And yet, He still strives with me. Thanks be to God that He still strives with me. But I want to warn you, He does not strive with the proud. He cannot. He cannot. You won't hear it. It's not His fault at all. But it's on us. We won't hear it. Nebuchadnezzar is not the only one in the Bible who was proud and God humbled him in a powerful place. You may remember in the New Testament in Acts 12, Herod The Bible says very clearly, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, put on all of his regalia, took his seat upon his throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were were shouting, this is the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And by the way, he was eaten by worms and breathed his last Yikes. I didn't add that. That was actually there. The most powerful man in the world in the richest clothes you can imagine, dead, eaten by worms. We must be brought low in order to fly. I guess it was last year at some point, I forget what I, what I was doing, but I was rushing off somewhere, which is my normal way of life. And, um, and before I left, I was trying to shut down the garage, and a bird flew in. And this bird flew in my garage, and, and I'm like, all right, buddy, come on, come on, let's get out, get out, hurry up, come on. You know, so I shut down the garage, so he only has one way out, and so he'll like know that, you know, hey, let's get out, right? And he just keeps flying up and hitting the ceiling, and he won't come down enough to fly out of the garage, and I'm getting frustrated. I'm opening the garage. I'm closed. I got a broom out. I'm doing this number. I'm already late. And he won't, he, he won't lower himself to come out. All he's got to do is that far. If he just lower himself that far, instead of going on top of the garage, he'd go on the bottom of the garage and be out in freedom. But he can't stop trying to be up. And God was like, hey, big guy. That's you. You won't lower yourself enough to be free. To fly high. Instead, you're trapped banging your head against the ceiling. Like that bird. We have to be brought low to be exalted. We don't exalt ourselves as Christians. Anyone that's tooting their own horn is a red flag in not only this church, in all churches. 
Because God does the exalting. The servant is the leader of all. We go wrong when we start claiming credit for what God has done. A friend of mine, as I've told you many times before, told me a story that happened here in Huntsville with a surgeon. After the surgery was over, brought the family in to debrief. He was shadowing this guy, and he went in there, and the, and the, the older lady, you know, it was her husband who had the surgery, she said, oh, thank God that he's okay. And he looked dead at her and said, why are you thanking God? I'm the one who did the surgery. You know, that's one way to live, thinking that you did everything. That's how Nebuchadnezzar lived. I did this. I bought this. This is my house. This is my car. This is my wife. This is my husband. This is my kids. These are my kids. But really, why do you go to work? Why are you even employed? Why do you have the money you have? What do you do with it? What is good in your life and what is burdensome in your life? Like that thorn in the flesh. We all have thorns in our flesh. We all have a cross to bear. All good things, the scripture says, come from above. And even the burden comes from God who wants to share his burden for the world. Do you share in that burden? How many times, and I'm preaching to myself, this past week have I prayed for those who do not know God? God help us. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The NLT says it this way. Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. What is it that we are planting? What is it that we're preparing for? A worldly retirement? A vacation home? A bigger car? A better life? More leisure? To be mediocre at golf? To know the newest gossip and carry it forth? To have the newest and greatest and best technology available? Or are we preparing for heaven? And preparing those around us for heaven? It's okay to be rich. It's okay to be the 1%. And you say, well, that's good because I'm definitely not the 1%. But I would submit to you that when you look around the world, we are the 1%. If you make over $40,000 as a household a year, you are the 1% in the world. In the world. That nearly qualifies every single one of us to be what other people want to be. And we don't even care. We don't even know. We just want the next thing. We just feel like we're the poor ones. We're the ones who got the raw end of the deal It's because we're not humble. I looked up the word ignoble. It's a strange word. 
It's a Latin word. When you smash two words together, you get this word. It simply means not noble. But I would submit to you, honestly, as serious as I can, as I know how, we are the noble ones. Nobody that's nobility really thinks they've arrived, but we're here. As Americans, as people who enjoy great wealth, and even here, even again, the poor people here are richer than most people in the world. What are we going to do with it, though? Are we going to walk around on our walls that we've built? Put our robes on? Wow, I've arrived. Only to hear a voice from heaven? I'd submit to you the only thing we can do is be like the thief on the cross. A dying man asking a dying man for eternal life. A man without possessions ask a poor man for a kingdom. In the divine plan it was a thief who was the escort of the king of kings. The high king is on a cross naked with no possessions of his own. They've all been taken from him. Even the very clothes that he wore. If our Lord had come merely as a teacher, the thief would never have asked for forgiveness. There's no time for teaching at this point. But since the thief's request touched the reason of his coming to earth, namely to save souls, the thief heard the immediate answer, I promise you this day you will be with me in paradise. It was the thief's last prayer, perhaps even his first, Fulton Sheen says. He knocked once, sought once, asked once, dared everything and found everything. All in that moment, when even the disciples were doubting and only one was present at the cross, the thief owned and acknowledged Jesus as Savior. We must acknowledge Jesus as our Savior as Lord of life and everything that we own and everything that we've been given, we just have to ask. Humble yourselves and ask Jesus. Ask him for the good gifts. And the good gifts, Jesus himself says, about his Father is the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that dwelt in Daniel. The same spirit that rattled the bones in that dry valley in Ezekiel. Ezekiel who was prophesying about the people in exile because he was with the people in exile like Daniel in a different place with a different job. And we all are in different places with different jobs but we're called to the same spirit. That ought to rattle our bones and breathe life into our life, into our church, into our city, into our nation, into the world. So let's live thankful, not proud, proud lives. Let's be humiliated 
for the sake of Christ. Let us not think higher of ourselves, but more of others. I think Wesley's covenant prayer is a powerful thing to pray. Very humbling thing to pray. He says this, I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for thee or laid aside for thee. Which is what ignoble means again. Exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine and I am thine. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Let us humble ourselves before the Lord and live lives of thankful obedience. Amen.